3: Good morning, folks. We hope that your Thursday morning has started off uh, well. We have some traffic problems in and around the city, so if there's any update to that, we will make sure that we inform you of saying we've got a great lineup for you today. We're going to visit with Debbie Villio, Louisiana State Representative from Jefferson Parish. Uh, Representative Villio is carrying some bills on behalf of the Governor Landry's administration relative to this crime special session. We'll get an update as to where those bills are, what they are about, and what they hope to accomplish. Jacques Thibodeau, the director of State GOSA, the governor's office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, joins us at 12. The Louisiana National Guard is a step closer to heading to the southern border. Uh, Texas is actually sent. An official request for border support, we'll find out what is the purpose of the mission and what they hope to accomplish, and the costs as well associated with that deployment. Natalie J. Rowe joined us. She is the president and CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank in the 11 o'clock hour. The summer EBT program for low-income students in Louisiana has decided the Landry administration not to participate What will be the downstream implications of same? there are a number of Republican led states that have decided that they would not participate in this program, which is running out kind of the tail end of a number of pandemic sponsored programs by the federal government. We'll try and dig a little deeper as to why we're making this decision and what the impact will be in our state. Every other week we visit with the port of New Orleans in order to find out what's going on there because the diversity of the activities that they're involved in, the diversity of the impact that they make to our local economy is huge. And we think it is of some value to make sure and ensure that the constituency in southeast Louisiana have a better understanding of the role that the port plays in not only our local, our state, but our national economy and how important it is. And joining us today is the Press Secretary for the Port of New Orleans, Kimberly Kurth, as well as Walt Leger, President and CEO of New Orleans & Company. Folks, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Newell. Newell. Folks, just your appreciation of the intro. I, I don't think I overstated the importance of this, but why don't we just start off there?
4: Absolutely. And, and our cruise industry is certainly uh, making significant contributions uh, to the hospitality and tourism industry. And we went through a lot with COVID. We we saw that the cruise business came to a complete halt with the global pandemic, but we're happy to report uh, that cruise is back and it is back in a big way. We actually finished so strong in 2023 with nearly 1.2 million cruise passenger movements. So that is back to pre-pandemic levels and we are expecting this year to actually be our best yet.
3: Where do we see um, the cruise industry going and what is our capacity? I mean obviously um, I think the um, there's been increases in the demand in, in cruises the uh, the diversity of the type of cruises as well has is, has expanded. Do we have a feel for how big this industry could be for us?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, what sets New Orleans apart that makes us different than most of the cruise ports in the United States is that we offer both ocean-going and river cruises. River cruises are extremely popular right now, so is ocean-going. And what a lot of people may not realize is we are actually the sixth largest cruise port in the country. Um, So there is tremendous demand here in New Orleans, and, and another reason we kind of set ourselves apart is that you can enjoy two vacations in one here. Uh, we know that the majority of our cruise passengers tend to spend up to two days here, either before or after their cruise. They, of course, get to enjoy our world-renowned restaurants and attractions. So that is certainly uh, providing a significant uh, impact to our uh, local economy and regional economy. And, and, and just industry-wide, we know that a record number of cruise passengers are expected to sail this year. Um, And and that could be because cruising offers uh, very attractive options, cheaper travel alternative, uh, because you're getting a lot of value for your money. You get to see multiple destinations on one trip. Uh, Your food and activities are included in one price. So we know um, that all age groups are are taking uh, advantage of this and all the wonderful options that are out there for cruising, particularly from New Orleans.
5: And yeah, to yeah both, Newell, uh, just to add,
3: go, go ahead, Walt. Just, yes, go just, ahead.
5: Just, yeah, sorry. Just to, to add on to that, I think all of that's obviously 100% accurate, but 90% of cruise guests traveling uh, out of our port are from out of state. 73% of those are staying one or two extra nights in New Orleans, either before, after, or either or, or even before and after. And they're generating about 300,000 hotel room nights each year in our city and spending up to $125 million at retail outlets, at restaurants, and at, and with other businesses across the community. So it's become a really significant part of the overall economy here. And, um, I, you know, our team really enjoys partnering with the Port of New Orleans to go out and sell our city as uh, as, as such a popular destination for people across the country um, in diverse modes of, of cruising, as was mentioned, river cruises and ocean-going cruises.
3: Um, help me out here. So we're the sixth largest cruise port, and I and I think I have a pretty good idea who one through five is. But are there any cruise ports where you can uh, disembark from the cruise and literally walk to the number of attractions that we have in the city of New Orleans, and not even get into a cab? Because uh, most of the big cruise ports that I'm aware of, some of them in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know. I think of Miami. I mean, it's a hike to get to the cruise port in Miami. Um there are a number of others that it's not easy to get to either. I mean, you can just simply get off the ship and walk to the French Quarter.
5: Yeah, I think, that is we're, so true. I think we're
3: Yeah, go ahead.
4: No, I I just completely agree with that. I mean, I think we are so attractive because we're in such close proximity, all the fun. We're right there at the French Quarter. We're right behind the convention center. Um, And so, you know, we have an international airport. So we have travelers from all over the world coming in uh, to visit our city, our vibrant city, and to to cruise out of New Orleans. But also we're a significant drive-in market as well.
5: Go ahead, Walt. Noel, we talk about this a lot when, we, when we're when we together. I mean, our city is compact, and it makes it incredibly walkable and attractive for people to visit for a variety of reasons. But certainly for these cruise visitors, being able to be just steps away from uh, downtown, the French Quarter, attractions like Audubon Aquarium, uh, the World War II Museum, obviously dozens of incredible uh, restaurants and, um, and retail shopping opportunities. I think that we are certainly... Um, again you know we talk about being built to host and and for visitors to come here again this is another demonstration of how a compact city with assets really closely aligned creates a lot of value for our for our guests and it makes them want to stay here longer and spend more money.
3: Kimberly, what cruise line is is the predominant player for us um, from the from our port of New Orleans?
4: Carnival. Uh, Carnival offers two year-round vessels, so um, they are a wonderful partner. Um, they have actually renewed for at least five more years of those two year-round vessels. Uh, this year, Carnival celebrate its 30th year of cruising from New Orleans, so we're of course very excited about that. So they are they are very popular. But also, we have uh, so many other wonderful cruise line partners who are continuing to show confidence in the Louisiana cruise market through Port Nola. We have Norwegian. We have uh, Royal Caribbean. Disney uh, just started their 2024 sailings from New Orleans um, last month. Um, so a lot of options. And, of course, um, we, we, we want to mention our, our river cruising because that is really offering such a unique uh, sailing experience to, to see the inland United States and, and see the beautiful Mississippi River.
3: How is that how has that been progressing? I mean, I know they're kinda of new to the market. I read the other day that one of the cruise lines um uh filed for bankruptcy and is going out of business. How how is that progressing?
4: Yeah, and, and the news you mentioned is of course um disappointing, but we it in no way uh, you know reflects the demand for river cruising out of New Orleans. Uh, the amount of sailings for that particular cruise line was minimal here. Um, and, you know, our river cruising, we know, is extremely popular. The demand is there, and there continues to be strong growth projections. Um, you know, and it, it's it's not uncommon for cruise lines, uh, for example, to reposition ships based on market demand. So this, on a positive note, leaves the opportunity and the door open to offer more sailings and new vessels out of Port Nola for river cruising.
3: And Walt, I know that y'all work closely with the lieutenant governor's office, and he works hard to to bring to the forefront uh, attractions and historic sites and things of that nature when folks visit the city to expand out uh, out of the city to the metro area and into the river parishes. Has that has that help, Have these river cruises helped in 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 that endeavor?
5: Yeah, absolutely, Noel. I think you know what's interesting about the cruise industry is that. While so many travelers have have shifted to booking their travel directly, two thirds, um, almost seventy five percent of cruise bookings still happen with travel advisors and travel professionals. So we do work with them very closely. But to your point, the um, the ability for us to attract visitors to New Orleans and then spread them around to other parts across the state is always something that I think we take as a part of our responsibility. In, in selling New Orleans and Louisiana when we're out there nationally and, and globally. And the river cruises are a great example of that. They do make stops up and down the river, supporting businesses in smaller communities and creating those opportunities for people to not just experience New Orleans, but also get into really other significant places across our state, uh, upriver from here. So the river cruises, I think, are a really nice example of uh, on a regular basis being able to attract and then distribute visitors around the state, which benefits those local communities and contributes tax dollars to the state of Louisiana um, and, and helps support jobs across not just our region but but all over the state of Louisiana.
3: Do we do much in as it relates to coordination of some of these crews to some of the big events that we have here, like, you know, Jazz Fest, French Quarter Fest, obviously Super Bowl?
4: Well, I I, I can speak to just recently, we are actually expecting more port calls this year and a port call is essentially when a vessel comes in just to visit New Orleans, it's not necessarily home ported here. So uh, just recently, Celebrity Cruise Lines Constellation was just in port for Mardi Gras. That ship, as as I mentioned, you know, it's actually home ported in Tampa, but its cruise passengers were able to enjoy a three day port call just here in New Orleans, just in time. Mardi Gras and we're also expecting a visit this year from the Ventura Um, that is part of P&O Cruise Line Uh, that's a European brand Uh, so we know that cruise passengers from all over the world are coming to New Orleans to uh, experience our unique attractions like Mardi Gras uh, and our world-renowned
5: restaurants
4: Um, and and so obviously New Orleans is a vibrant city that's known around the world and, and people want to experience that.
5: And, and the work that we're doing with these travel advisors speaks to that as well. So, you know, I mean, we, uh, in order for those travel advisors to sell New Orleans, we've got to sell the travel advisor on why New Orleans. And, and so that's why we're going to, you know, key industry events, cruise-related trade shows and other things. We do that in connection with the sales team at the Port of New Orleans, uh, and we sell together to try to attract those uh, professionals to listing us um, when they're out there selling to the to the general public on why they should choose New Orleans. And I think, obviously, all of that rich culture and the events, festivals, and other things that we have here uh, create the tools with which we sell. So I, I think there's no question that New Orleans uh, is, is important to selling. Um, you know, New Orleans itself and the things happening here is an important factor there. Um, the other thing that's kind of great about our our industry is that ultimately we are a, a port of, um, we're a port that people are traveling out of, not necessarily traveling into. And you hear sometimes that there are challenges in communities when so many people arrive all at once um, in those in those uh, destinations. We are benefiting greatly from these visitors who come a little more um, in a little more spread out fashion. They come in days in advance, particularly in an environment where uh, air travel has become a little more unpredictable. It's actually playing to our benefit a little bit because people can't miss their ship, so they come in earlier um, and they enjoy our city for a few days. So it's a few things in the marketplace that are actually kind of assisting us and adding further value uh, to the broader uh, tourism and hospitality industry here in the city.
3: You know, it's interesting. I read an article the other day about open water sailing on cruise ships. And one body of water that was not mentioned as being a big challenge was the Gulf of Mexico. But so many other bodies of water uh, they talked about and, and they shared video clips of most recent happenstances and the difficulty of making it across those bodies of water. It's like, I think I'll sail in the Gulf of Mexico and not go to these other places cuz it looked absolutely treacherous in some in some respect.
4: Sure. I but, mean it, that would and be I quite don't know the I experience. don't know if y'all
3: hear comments about that or not but I mean it was, if they were, if people re- re- read this article they're coming to New Orleans to go on a cruise cause Yeah, well, look, some to, of those
5: to your, to your point to your point we think that we're the superior destination as well and obviously the Gulf of Mexico Uh, serves an incredible um, as an incredible partner in that and 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 absolutely i think it's not exactly the same open water as you're going to get in the atlantic or in the caribbean necessarily it's a little more safe at least during certain times of the year so i think we'll take every advantage we can get and i think that is another one
3: uh kimberly final thoughts
4: we we just are thrilled uh, that uh, our cruise passengers um, have so much trust in our our ability to provide them a safe, wonderful vacation, and we're we're just so encouraged by um, these recommitments from our cruise line partners. And we again are expecting our best year yet uh, to surp- surpass pre-pandemic numbers. So it's going to be a good year.
5: Walt. Yeah, we we continue to be thrilled with our partners at, at the Port of New Orleans. They do such incredible work day in and day out, not just in hosting the cruise industry, but in delivering international trade and commerce for our whole community. And so it's our pleasure to continue to work with them. We cheer them on. You know, I think as we go on, we ought to be, you know, looking around and ensuring that we have all the necessary infrastructure to continue to support this thriving industry. And um, I think we'll probably be having those kind of conversations as, as things go forward. But ultimately, as was mentioned, um, cruise industries bounce back strong nationally, but particularly strong here. And so we applaud the efforts of the port to continue to be one of the premier destinations for, for cruise travel and and look forward to continuing to to work together to to create economic opportunity for the whole community. It's really
3: yeah, fun I to talk about. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that. I was going to say, it's just really fun to talk about good news. You know, there's so many right. challenges out no there. No doubt about it. No you, doubt about it. You know, it. when things are going well, it's really, it's really exciting to, to to talk about it and to see that we have these uh, upside growth opportunities. And and I know on both of the organizations very well. I, I know that y'all will capture that moment and not miss the moment. And we appreciate all of the effort of both the Port of New Orleans as well as. New Orleans & Company. Kimberly Kurth, Press Secretary, Port of New Orleans, and Wal Jay President and CEO of New Orleans & Company. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You as well. Okay, folks. 504 260 on the and Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Stay with us. We will be right back.
2: Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.
3: Welcome back folks. There's a lot of different news out there that uh, there's so much to get to cover. You've heard me talk about this before. Earlier this month we talked about a situation relative to the ACTSAT where it, Dartmouth University reinstated the utilization of those standardized test scores well it turns out more and more of um, high performing universities in this country are going back to it in fact Yale University announced this week that they will require students to submit to standardized test scores when they apply for admission Um, they uh, announced that this uh, past Thursday Um, The change actually comes after uh, they have determined, after looking at the students that they allowed into their university that opted out of providing test scores and their success rate, that they found that the scores were the single best predictor of students' academic performance, and that if they didn't consider them, it would be a disadvantage for those who have already faced uh, daunting challenges. Now, there are a lot of folks out there that have fought long and hard against the ACT and the SAT and standardized uh, testing, saying that they are discriminatory. Uh, it turns out when they look back over uh, the last uh, several years, maybe as many as 10 years, they found that um, in the case of Yale, their ability to increase diversity from 2013 to 2019. Uh, for underrepresented minority students, they actually increased 52%. The number of students who were first in their families to attend college increased 65%, and the number of freshmen eligible for a Pell Grant increased 95%. So a lot of the talking points, the sound bites that are being provided by opponents to standardized testing are just not holding true and but the debate on the value of these tests is is going to continue right and there are as many as uh, i think as many as 70% of colleges today that have gone te- that are still test optional for four, four-year colleges but i i believe that we will continue to see more and more requiring the ACT or the SAT yale not unlike dartmouth found that the scores accurately predicted academic performance, and students with higher scores were more likely to have higher grades at Yale. And that finding was actually consistent with a recent study from a dozen highly selective colleges from uh, an organization called Opportunity Insights, in which researchers found, even among otherwise similar students with the same grades in high school, SAT and ACT scores have substantial predictive power for academic success in college. Now, one thing that's certain is that the moment in time that these high-performing universities decided to go test optional, applicants increase. In the case of Yale, for example, it went from 35,000 to 57,000 applicants a 66% increase in four years. Certainly, there were record numbers of applications from students who would be first in their families to attend college, who live in lower-income neighborhoods, and who identify as members of underrepresented minority groups. But Yale says when applications without scores were reviewed, what actually happened was that admission officers put greater weight on other portions and aspects of the application in ways that inadvertently hurt these same students not all high schools are the same not all have the same competition level uh, they a lot of universities are very wary of great inflation in fact a number of universities are guilty of great inflation but the fact of the matter is is that when you're trying to assess, these opportunities on behalf of these applicants, it should be all about who's going to be the most likely to succeed in these universities. Otherwise, you're lowering the standards, right? And what they're finding is there is a huge disagreement in this equality versus equity. It's the friction, and it appears in almost every walk in life today, and it continues to be a problem for a lot of folks to deal with. But what they're recognizing is, quite frankly, in universities, Tommy Tucker talked about this extensively with an expert earlier in his show today. This is a business in the end, and it's about keeping butts in the seats. And if seats go vacant in year two or three because they just cannot uh, handle the academic rigor that's being provided by some of these universities, it's not it doesn't work well it doesn't work well for anyone because it's a, it ends up being a wasted seat for someone who might otherwise have been able to complete the academic requirements in a four-year term i suspect that we will see more universities reinstating standardized test requirement for admission We'll be right back after the break. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text line. Stay with us.
2: I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: On the immigration front, uh, some new news. Blue states, blue cities using COVID funds to support illegal immigrants. It seems as though uh, a number of um, Democrat cities and Democratic states, both uh, most of whom are sanctuary cities and sanctuary states, have taken money uh, under the American Rescue Plan, that was uh, a COVID nineteen stimulus package that President Biden signed into law in March of twenty twenty one, for purposes of people here legally right citizens. Uh, and and uh, that's what this money was uh, earmarked for, has now been utilized by the state of Illinois, the state of Washington, the city of Chicago, Boston, and the list goes on and on, Denver, New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, and others, and have been giving illegal immigrants checks, some in the amount of $1,000 and others, and other uh to illegal immigrants. And it seems as though we're just finding out about this. And now questions are being asked, well, how, how does this work? How did we take a COVID-19 pandemic relief plan and make that into a situation where we're paying illegal immigrants that come to this country? Again, where is the citizen privilege? Why is it that the funds that weren't spent, that should have been spent for the purposes that they were distributed to these states and cities, why were they not done that way? And how can they just magically wave a, a magic wand across these funds and make it into something else and nobody seems to know anything about it? Of course, the Biden administration uh, is not going to do anything about it, right? They fully are in support of all of this. And it continues on. You will recall about three weeks ago that I mentioned, why would we give anybody benefits of anything as it related to immigration law that came into this country in between the ports of entry? They didn't come at a port of entry. They came across the border in some other fashion. Well, it turns out that... um, Folks in the administration are saying that there may be consideration of new executive action. And it may be that the Biden administration, they actually are having discussion of using a section of the Immigration and Nationality Act to bar migrants from seeking asylum in between U.S. ports of entry. Hmm. Go, Go figure. But there's a catch, as always. They need to have a trigger. They just can't say. If you come between the ports of entry, this is a problem. So they want to add the additional measure that it would only come into effect after a certain number of illegal crossings to, took place. Very similar to the bill that they've tried to to tell folks that the Republicans are not being honest about this immigration Issue and crisis. Now it's a crisis because more and more Democrats are saying that it is, in fact, a crisis. And and I guess they're reading the polls, and now they're reading now they're recognizing that this could potentially hurt them politically in November. And now now all of a sudden it it has become a crisis. And now all of a sudden it is a front and center issue because the polls are reflecting that you, me, and others are upset about the manner in which this administration has handled immigration in this country. Now now it has become a a crisis. So there needs to be a certain number of illegal crossings before we would impose this sanction that you wouldn't be able to avail yourself of asylum, for example. But all of those that came before that trigger number, they, they would be they would get an official okie-dokie by this administration. It's only those after that that they would end up dealing with and ultimately deporting. They're also talking about raising the credible fear standard and what that actually means, right? So the Biden administration has basically embarked upon a standard or a definition of credible fear, which is very similar to the fear that many of our citizens have in uh, cities that are ridden with crime. They they have fear of gang activity. They have a fear of being jacked up in their car. They have a fear of the number of shootings. They have a fear of the number of, of murders. And the interesting thing is, is that we don't really have a plan or a sanctuary place to put any of our own citizens, when they can articulate these same fears, they just have to live through that fear, they have to live through the horror, and they have to continue to try and circumvent this in order to survive. But when it comes to illegals, we allow them to articulate the same fears that our citizens have in this country, and we give them a special status. It's amazing to me how this works. We grant them asylum. We give them a ticket to ride. We let them choose what city they want to go to, most of whom are are choosing to go to sanctuary cities. Why? Because there are additional measures and protections. That's why New York City, for example, because of a local ordinance, they have to and are compelled by law to find find housing for people that are homeless, whether you're legal or, or illegal in this country. And they're spending millions upon millions upon millions of taxpayer dollars in order to do so. But the fear that they're articulating is no different than the fear that people in Brooklyn are articulating. Or people in the Bronx. Or people in Harlem. Or people in Manhattan. That are citizens. Where is their safe harbor? Where is their ticket to ride and where is their avenue to get out and circumvent or move away from this articulable fear? So it seems as though a lot of this is being considered and are actually are saying that there may be an executive directive or action that, that may take place before the State of the Union speech on March 7th. Hmm. Do you believe in coincidences? I don't. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. On the text line, someone's really upset that I'm not talking about this uh, FBI confidential informant. They say in the text that it's an FBI agent. Um, We might want to read more about it because it's an FBI informant that allegedly lied about Biden relative to taking $5 million from Burisma. And one of the reasons they say that he lied is that his contacts with Barisma, the FBI informant, that is, took place in 2017, which was after Biden had uh, left office as vice president of the United States. And there's very little that has been revealed about why they believe that this individual has lied about this. And that's kind of why I have not talked about it. But what I do know, and according to, um, NBC News and others that are not a bastion of conservative thought, right? Uh, they're not biased towards a conservative way of thinking, uh, pointed out that um, FBI officials um, were questioned about this particular informant, Alexander Smirnoff, um, and um they were they asked about uh, and wanted records to be released relative uh to this in, individual but fbi director christopher ray and other bureau officials they briefed members of congress on the issue last year uh during multiple in person meetings and during those meetings uh questions about the credibility of the confidential human source were asked and the fbi told lawmakers then this is just a year ago that the source was highly valued by the FBI, was considered the go-to source in the region, and had been paid six figures by the FBI for work that he did on behalf of the FBI to date. So I don't know what happened in a year. Uh, It may be that the informant was lying. Informants lie. Uh, but you rely upon the FBI and their characterization of their own informants. Uh, so moving forward in the utilization of the informant as a result of that um, seem perfectly logical to me. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're perfect. They don't know all of the intentions. They don't know all of the back-channel That goes on with a number of these international informants. Uh, You try to do the best job. I'm not being critical of the FBI. But it's hard to be critical of anyone else when you're being told that this source was the go-to source in the region and that the FBI had been paying him, I think, for a period of about 20 years. Or maybe it was 10. uh, During that period of time, six figures for the work that he did. So read a little deeper Uh, be a little bit more cautious about these statements. I don't know exactly where this is going to go. I understand that he was arrested in Las Vegas. I understand that he's pled not guilty. Um, This case is going to go to trial. We'll see where this thing uh, unwinds one way or the other. But what we do know is that Hunter Biden ended up going to work for Burisma, and no one has been really able to articulate why what What did Hunter Biden bring to the table as to expertise in international financing? None. Uh, any gas and or um, oil experience? None. What experience did he bring in his own admission? It was he says it was probably because of his last name. And then we get to the testimony by Biden's brother, James about this Chinese energy firm and the fact that he received some of the dollars, he claims he just recently learned that the money that he received was from the Chinese energy company. Then why would you be receiving the money? You don't question the source of the money that you're receiving? Why are payments being made to you? You're just so used to these intermediators, intermediate intermediate individuals, excuse me, providing funds for you. That's how the Biden machine worked. Interesting. Um, I'm sure that everyone in the listening audience has, has has had a similar experience. They got money from someone didn't know the source of it, but somebody in the family just said they wanted them to have it. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in
0: Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island